You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. We're going, going through our sermon series, which, which is called God for Us. We're talking about God and how he's for us. Pretty simple. Um, last couple of weeks, we've kind of been combating the, the misguided thoughts that we often have about God, though, while, while trying to readjust and hopefully readjust our thinking and our confidence in a God who is for us, a God who's on our side, right? A God who pursues us relentlessly, a God who rejoices and sings over us, a God who died to bring us home. That's the God we're talking about, a God who's for us. Um, but here's the big question that we often wrestle with and um, that the anti-God types think that they're so clever in asking all the time. Um, it goes something like this. This is the question. It goes something like this. If God is for us, then where was he during that tragedy? Right? If God is for us, then where was he when we were hurting? Right? If, 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 if God is for us, where was he when we were suffering, when, when, when life was hard? Right? That's a pretty common question that we ask. And uh, following the news this summer was, um, in that regard, was particularly difficult, right? Uh, hurricanes ripping through islands, through uh, Central America, through Florida and Texas, fires throughout B.C. and, and Alberta and, and the United States and the rest of the world as well, right? We saw senseless violence and shootings in the news, including a, a shooting just this last week at, at a church in Tennessee. Uh, we, we saw racist protests. Uh, the list goes on, right? We're seeing all this, this tragedy, this sorrow, um, this chaos, right? And it's easy to think in light of all this stuff, how is God for us? And I'm sure we've all had that, that thought, you know, ourselves and in times of personal hardship or, or sorrow, right? When, when everything seems bleak and hopeless and, and we feel like we're in this darkness that's never ending, um, if you want more on that, read Psalm 88, right? And, and when we start thinking, you know, God, I thought you were for me. What's going on? I thought you were for me. Um, but yet it's interesting, though, that when we, when we read through, through um, Romans 8, we see that this kind of reasoning, this kind of thinking doesn't hinder the Apostle Paul's faith. Um, when he writes, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? We read that a couple of weeks ago. Um, he get, and then he goes on and says, he gave his son to save us, so why would he ever leave us? Right? And then he follows that up with a list. He follows that confidence up with a list of horrible things that could happen to us as we live on this earth. Right? In Romans 8.35, he, he writes, who will separate us from Christ's love? Will we be separated by trouble or distress or harassment? or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Right? He's writing all these things. In other words, they might happen to us. These things might happen to us. And, and personally, uh, I, I, I personally hope I don't ever experience the nakedness one. Um, that would be a nightmare. Um, I'm sure I wake up from, from nightmares about you know, being naked while I'm preaching in front of everybody. Um, that would be less favorable for me. The sword also sounds pretty terrible. Um, but really, you know, what Paul's saying here in this passage is that we will face tragedy, right? We will face hardship. We will face persecution, death even, right? It's one of the certainties of life, death, right? But, facing, but he's saying that facing these things does not negate the truth, that God is for us. That's what he's saying. Facing all these 
things does not negate the truth that God is for us. God is still for us during these hard times. So the next question is, well, how? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And to do that, to get a deeper look at the state of God's heart for us in times of our trial, trials and our sorrow and our despair, we're going to go through a particular event in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, as D.A. Carson writes, the measure of God's love for us is Jesus. So if you want to see the full measure of God's love, watch Jesus. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to watch Jesus. Uh, we're going to witness the intensity and power of God's love through Jesus as we read through John 11, 17 to 37. So if you want to turn with me there. And it's a, it's a long passage. Um, so I'm going to set it up for you quickly. We're going to skip the first 10 verses of John 11. Uh, sorry, the first 16 verses of John 11. And, um, so I'm going to set it up for you. So Jesus is friends with these three siblings, Lazarus, Martha, and their, their younger sister, Mary. And he hears word that Lazarus is sick and he's dying. And so he starts, you know, he takes his disciples and he starts making his way towards them to the town where they live. And on the way there, Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they're like, oh, you can wake him up then. And he's like, no, I mean, he's dead. Right? He, he died. And um, so, he are, so Jesus knows that he's going into this, this place where Lazarus has already died. Um, he's not surprised by it or anything. And he tells his disciples that this has happened um, so that he could reveal God's glory. And this is where we catch up with the passage. So John eleven, seventeen to 37. All right. It says, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was a little less than two miles from Jerusalem. Many Jews had come to comfort Martha and Mary after their brother's death. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, while Mary remained in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. And Martha replied, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She replied, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, God's son, the one who is coming into the world. After she said this, she went and spoke privately to her sister Mary. The teacher is here and he's calling for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to Jesus. He hadn't entered the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were comforting Mary in the house saw her get up quickly and leave, they followed her. They assumed she was going to mourn at the tomb. When Mary arrived where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying also, he was deeply disturbed and troubled. He asked, where have you laid him? They replied, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to cry. The Jews said, see how much he loved him? But some of them said, he healed the eyes of the man born blind. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? So both Martha and Mary, when they approach Jesus, they say to him what I think that we, we all tend to say in moments of, of tragedy and heartache, right? Lord, if you would have been here, 
Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Lord, if you would have been here, you could have stopped that earthquake. Lord, if you would have been here, I wouldn't have failed that test, right? That's the question that we ask when we're going through hard times. Lord, if you wouldn't have been here. But the implication behind this expression or this statement isn't, or the assumption that we can make about it really is that, is that we're not doubting God's ability to save, right? We're doubting his desire to save us. If you would have been here really means if you actually cared at all, right? If you actually cared even a little, you would have shown up, right? That's the implication when we say that, right? Martha and Mary, in their anguish and grief of having lost their brother, they're not, they're not doubting his lordship or his, his power. As Martha says, even now I know that whatever you ask God, he'll give you. And she says, I know that you are the son who's coming into the world, right? She's not doubting who he is. They're not doubting he's the son of God, but they, they're accusing Jesus in their grief of not getting there quickly enough, of not coming sooner. In other words, of not caring enough. But let's back up to verse 35 again, because we definitely see a different picture. When Jesus is confronted with the weeping Mary and, and the, the Jews that are, that are surrounding her and comforting her, and they're all crying, and then he's confronted with, with the news that Lazarus is in the grave, what happens? Jesus began to cry. Or as some translations say, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. It's the, the shortest verse in the Bible, but yet one of the most profound and powerful verses in the Bible. Because Jesus is displaying the heart of God here. And this is what we're seeing. We're seeing a God who weeps for us. God weeps for us. His heart breaks when he sees us suffering. Our pain affects him deeply. Our sorrows touch and move the heart of God to tears. He's not distant and, and disinterested, right? Or he's not psychotically laughing at our anguish. He's not cold and calculating. His tears mean simply but profoundly that he cares. Even the Jews gathered there, commented on his tears because it was so obvious. They're saying, look how much he loved him. So think about this. When, when Jesus arrived to find Martha and Mary, both heartbroken, both distraught at losing their brother, he, he deals with both of them uniquely and personally. But the underlying way that he interacts with them is with compassion, with deep compassion. He's truly affected by seeing his friends in sorrow and another in the grave. As it says, his heart was deeply disturbed and troubled. Especially because all these, all these things that, that, that they're facing, the sorrow, the pain, suffering, and especially death, these things are enemies of God. Right? These very real aspects of our lives are a result of our world being fallen, right? being corrupted by sin and the power of hell. Right? And for Jesus to see some of his closest friends having to, to deal with these things, to see their hopelessness, to see them sobbing and wailing at their loss, this genuinely moved him. Right? He didn't show up to a surprising situation. He knew that Lazarus was, was in the grave. He's not surprised. He's moved by their sorrow. And how could it not? How could it not move him? 
So yes, God is for us. In truth, God weeps for us. But it's not an empty, powerless weeping which leads to nothing. Right? It's not just sadness in and of itself. And that's the best part. Jesus takes that sadness, that sorrow, and he turns it into comfort. And then he turns it into hope. And then it moves him to respond and to take action. So let's unpack that a bit. There's, there's three characteristics of Jesus about this, in this passage that, that I want to point out. So number one, Jesus' tears move him to comfort us. Right? His compassion moves him to comfort us. 1 Corinthians 1, 3-4 says this, May the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ be blessed. He is the compassionate Father and God of all comfort. He's the one who comforts us in all our trouble so that we can comfort other people who are in every kind of trouble. We offer the same comfort that we ourselves receive from God. In Exodus, when when God describes himself for the first time, he describes himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, the first thing, the first thing that he states about himself is not that he's a God of love, it's not that he's a God of faithfulness, it's not that he's a God of glory, not any of that, right? The first thing that he tells Moses is that he's a God of compassion. We always think of God as, we always define him as the God, as God of love, right? The first thing that God describes about himself is that he's a God of compassion. And order matters to God. So the fact that he listed this first among all of his other, all of his other character traits is significant. It's incredibly significant. He's the God of compassion. He's the one who comforts us in our trouble. He's the God who weeps with us when, when we weep. He's the God who draws us into his peace, into his arms of mercy, like a good father, right? As, as Martha and Mary demonstrate as well, it's okay to come to this God of compassion in tears and, and anguish and hopelessness and confusion. It's okay to come and express our feelings of being distraught to God because we know that he'll respond with compassion and mercy. Because we know that he's the God who knows what we're going through as well. In fact, Jesus, he empathizes with us, right? As it says in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He knows what we're feeling, even. He's been through suffering and temptation. He's experienced tragedy and and betrayal and hunger and intense loss. He knows sorrow. And Isaiah, they call him the man of sorrows. He understands what we're going through. And so that makes his comfort even that much more meaningful. And I think this is also important for us to remember as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, right? That, that we're called, as 1 Corinthians says, to comfort one another as well in the same way that Jesus comforts us. So we can learn from Jesus here that, that he didn't hesitate or resist walking into a hopelessly dire situation. And he wasn't ashamed or embarrassed either in being openly emotional in front of everybody. Right? Crying is okay. Crying is okay. Showing how you're feeling is okay. I think it's 
easier and, and tempting instead, you know, to we see someone that's hurting and we just like, you know, give them a pat on the back and tell them we'll pray for them. And then we walk or actually run away from that situation before things start to get awkward and emotional. Right. That's that's our knee jerk reaction. But Jesus actions here are a reminder for us that we need to be there for each other just as he's always there for us. We need to be ready and willing to put our, our selfish desires um, away and our, and our awkwardness and our embarrassment and our hesitations aside and, and, and weep with those who weep. We need to be ready to walk into, into someone's darkness with more than a tuna casserole. But walk into someone's darkness ready to share that darkness with them until they're able to see the light of Christ that you've brought with you through your love and compassion. That's what Jesus does for us. Right? He comes into our darkness. And also we see in the passage that there, there are actually a bunch of people there that are modeling this already. As it says, a bunch of Jews were there to, to comfort Mary and Martha at the loss of their brother. So they're modeling that, which is great. But Jesus' comfort is actually greater than theirs. Not that their comfort wasn't nice or good, right? They're sitting with the sisters and consoling them and hugging them and probably bringing them food, all, the, all that good stuff that we can do for each other. But in the end, they were helpless to do anything about the situation, right? They, they, they were helpless to change the situation. And Jesus isn't. Jesus' comfort, though, deeper still than theirs, also brings with it blessed reassurance, so this is the second point. Number two, Jesus' tears move him to bring us blessed reassurance. So a classic scene in my household is um, my youngest son will start crying in his room, and then he'll come out of his room with uh, two broken pieces of his toys in his hand, and, 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 and he'll just be like wailing um, at the loss of this toy that just broke. And um, as a parent, my, my first reaction will be to hug him, right, and console him and be like, oh, you know, love you, buddy. What, what happened? You know, um, you know, I feel for him. Um, but I don't stop, the, stop there, right? My heart's moved with sympathy for him because I know that he treats his toys like they're his children. Uh, he loves his toys. And so, so I comfort him with a hug um, and I tell him, you know, it'll be okay. But I don't stop there, right? I tell them that I'll fix his toy, right? I'll, or I'll tell them that maybe we'll, get a, maybe we'll think about getting a new one or something, right? I'll reassure him that it'll be okay, that, that the problem will be fixed. And that's what Jesus does for us. He doesn't just stop with comforting us and, and you know, being there with us and hugging us. He reassures us as well. He gives us hope. As Martha approached Jesus full of sorrow and accusations, right? Jesus comforted her by giving her hope, right? He, just said, he gently speaks to her. He says, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. So in the midst of our fear and our sadness and our hopelessness, Jesus reminds us that that he's got us covered. That there is and there will be light at the end of this darkened tunnel. And this is a reflection of the heart of God in Isaiah 41.10 as well, where it says, Don't fear, because I am with you. Don't be afraid, for I am your God. There's the comfort, right? And then the reassurance, I will strengthen you. I will surely help you. I will hold you 
with my righteous strong hand. So here's that, that blessed reassurance. God will help us. God is with us. He won't let us go. He will fix the problem. And, and we need that reminder, right, when all seems hopeless. And that brings us to the third and final point, which is that his tears over us aren't just nice hugs and empty promises of hope. The reminders for us that he's actually doing something about it, that he has the solution. So the third point here is tears move him to action. His compassion moves him to act. Psalm 34, 17 and 19 says, When the righteous cry out, the Lord listens. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those whose spirits are crushed. The righteous have many problems, but the Lord delivers them from every one. When we cry out to God, God acts. When we cry out to God, God acts. Don't be afraid to cry out to God. Because God is moved with compassion when we do. When all the disciples were in the boat in the storm, right, and they're crying out to Jesus, why aren't you saving us? Why aren't you saving us? Right? They're crying out with doubt but they're crying out to the one who can save them. And Jesus calms the storm. When we cry out to God, God acts. In fact, after Jesus moved to tears from both Martha and Mary, crying out to him, he asks Mary to lead him to the grave of Lazarus. And let's read what happens next. John eleven thirty-eight to 44. It says, Jesus was deeply disturbed again when he came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone covered the entrance. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, the smell will be awful. He's been dead for four days. But Jesus replied, Didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see God's glory? So they removed the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. I know you always hear me. I say this for the benefit of the crowd standing here, so that they will believe that you sent me. And having said this, Jesus shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his feet bound and his hands tied and his face covered with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, untie him and let him go. See, God's compassion over us moves him to action. Right? Jesus even tells us that the whole purpose of this event was to display that truth, right? To reveal God's glory. To show us that God is both moved by our plight and that he's doing something about it. And that he's able to do something about it. In fact, Jesus was so moved by, by, by seeing the grave where Lazarus was laid that, that he didn't just do something about it, but he did it with, with deep and intense passion. As it says, he shouted out. Right? He's not like hippie Jesus, like, oh, come out of there, Lazarus. Right? That's, not, that's not how the event unfolded. Right? And it's not a loud voice like a mom calling her, her child to come in for supper, right? He shouted in anguish. This is a tear-filled, passionate cry against the power of death that was holding Lazarus in the grave. He's saying, Lazarus, come out! This is intense. This is a passionate cry. 
God's compassion moves him to passionate and purposeful action. Whatever that looks like for each circumstance, right? And, and yes, sometimes we'll see miracles now. And sometimes we won't, and we can't explain that. And this sermon isn't, isn't, you know, about the theology of such things. But the underlining point here is that God doesn't want to leave us in our, in our sorrow. He doesn't want to leave us in our pain and ultimately in the midst of the consequences of our sin. He wants to rescue us from it. And not temporarily, but completely, fully. He answers our cries. Again, when, when Jesus tells Martha that her brother will rise again, Martha, Martha didn't know that he'd raise Lazarus from dead that day, right? She thought that Jesus was talking about the resurrection of all on the last day, right? And Jesus doesn't actually correct her. Instead, he affirms her statement by, by saying to her in, in John eleven twenty five twenty six, he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus showed this, certainly by resurrecting Lazarus from the dead that day, right? But we also know that that miracle was temporary. That solution was temporary. Lazarus will eventually die again. Maybe of old age this time, but he's still going to die. That doesn't solve the solution of death. In other words, what Jesus did with Lazarus was actually a glimpse of the glory that's to come, of resurrection life, when we'll never die again. So Martha wasn't actually wrong in her theology there. And ultimately what Jesus is showing us here is that he's responding to our suffering. He's responding to our sin but that ultimately he's going to deal with it completely, once for all. He's pointing to an eternal promise, an eternal hope. And Revelation 21.4 reveals to us what that beautiful outcome will be. Let's read that. Revelation 21.4. It says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I feel like reading that again. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the, this is the picture of our future hope. This is the heart of a God who's for us, whose desire is to remove all tears completely, to remove all death and the deep sorrow that comes with it. This is the heart of a God who's at work to make all things new. A God who responds to our pain with comfort and reassurance. A God who comes into our sorrow and deals with it and fixes it. A God who weeps with us. A God who's for us. And as Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this when everything in your life is going right? 
But more importantly, do you believe this when everything is hard and difficult and full of sorrow? Do you believe this? Isaiah 53, 3-5 says this about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Jesus bore our sorrows, our pain, our suffering, our sin, the effects of our sin upon himself at the cross. That's the solution. That's how he fixed our problem. Do you believe this?